What's up, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Riding the Pine. Jack Ryden, are back with you all today, and yet again, we've got another awesome episode in store for everyone at home, but as always, let's take a little dive into the last episode. I jumped right into discussing the top players in NCAA basketball that are in the transfer portal right now and where I could see them landing by the end of the summer. I then got into a great conversation with current overseas pro basketball player Xavier Colbert. Xavier and I got into his career playing at Northern Vermont, a Division III school and what it was like for him to transition from Division Three basketball over to the professional world of basketball, how he was able to get adjusted to overseas life, and so much more. So if you want to hear that conversation, make sure you go check out episode 219 and all 219 episodes that are out now on all podcast platforms. Now getting into today, I'm going to dive into the Patrick Beverly situation with him being on ESPN as of late and coming after Chris Paul and all of the drama that he's been starting in the media. I'll then be joined by a really, really, really great great guest and the first ever professional softball player to ever join the show, Samantha Shaw. Samantha and I get into her career playing at Texas A&M first and then transferring over to Oklahoma State. What it was like for her going through the transfer process right before the transfer portal was put into place and what she would have done differently during her initial recruitment process going to Texas A&M, the ins and outs to being a professional softball player and so much more. So if you want to hear a little bit about the professional softball world and a little bit about Samantha's career, don't go anywhere because she'll be here before you know it. So with that, folks, let's make our way into our show for today. So as always, be sure to find your favorite seat here on the bench with me. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And welcome back, everyone, here to the bench on RTP as always. Really appreciate everybody grabbing a little seat with me on the bench today, sitting down and enjoying this wonderful episode that we have going on today, because like I mentioned in the intro, we've got a brand new guest, a first ever on RTP, professional softball player, Samantha Shaw, sharing a little bit about her career, also sharing a little bit about the recruitment process that she went through during her collegiate career. Very, very interesting story, and also got into a little bit about the pre-transfer portal days, if you will, when she was trying to go through the transfer process and what she feels could be the impact that the transfer portal will have in collegiate sports moving forward. So a really, really great episode and a great conversation coming down the pipeline. But getting into the here and now, like I mentioned in the intro, I really want to get into what's been going on with Patrick Beverly, current guard for the Minnesota Timberwolves, who has now been hired, at least for the time being, by ESPN. And he has really been stirring the pot as of late. I mean, he has been coming after anybody and everybody, and in particular, Chris Paul, guard for the Phoenix Suns, And it's just been a very weird, unique, interesting kind of display of aggression, if you will, that he has been portraying in the media as of late. So, folks, as always, let's dive into the nitty gritty. So to kind of give everybody a little bit of a timeline going through step by step what's been going on, essentially Patrick Beverly, after the Timberwolves were bounced out of the playoffs by the Memphis Grizzlies, ESPN went out hire Patrick Beverly. He comes on, gets on Get Up in the Morning with Mike Greenberg on ESPN, comes on Monday through Friday, usually 8 a.m., and immediately he is just coming after Chris Paul, saying that he's overrated, people in the NBA are not afraid of him, people in the NBA are not afraid of the Suns, and he even went so far to say that when he knows he's playing the Suns, 
The night before, he'll stay out all night, do whatever, go to bed at 2 a.m., and he does not care that he's going to be playing the Suns the next day. But he said if he's playing the Warriors and Steph Curry, he's in bed by 8 p.m. the night before. So that just gives you kind of the idea that he really has no respect for the Suns, has no respect for Chris Paul, and Patrick Beverly has also actually been attacked by other NBA players and former NBA players. Matt Barnes, actually, an NBA analyst on ESPN, former NBA player himself, went out actually came back after Patrick Beverly and said, what's the deal? There's no need for that, right? He even said that it was just unnecessary. It was uncalled for. Even Danny Green went out and said something on a podcast about Patrick Beverly as well, saying that nobody is afraid of you either. Nobody is afraid of Patrick Beverly. What are you doing? Now, I will give Patrick Beverly a tiny bit of credit here. He tweeted out a statistic that showed that he's actually one of the best defenders when he's the primary defender on that other team's star player. And he pretty much tweeted at Danny Green sharing that, and Danny Green didn't really have much to retort back. But Patrick Beverly, again, has this all-out assault for Chris Paul. And granted, Chris Paul did not play very well against the Mavericks, right? I believe he had, what, 35 or 31 points over a four-game span, really struggled. He's 37, he's getting older, and Patrick Beverly even started coming out and saying that he's just not a good defender, criticizing his defense. Mind you, the guy's a eight, nine-time all-defensive player. I mean, Chris Paul has been consistently one of the best defensive guards in the NBA throughout the entirety of his career. And I will give Patrick Beverly credit here. He has also been a very good defender. However, I don't think that he has the right to come out and say all this stuff about Chris Paul when Patrick Beverly does not have anywhere near the resume that Chris Paul does. Now, you dive a little bit deeper into this situation, and you find out that Patrick Beverly has actually had a problem with Chris Paul dating back to when they were in high school. They both were invited to the Nike camp for LeBron James back in the late 2000s, I believe, and he said that he was just tearing up Chris Paul. Patrick Beverly was just tearing him up left and right, getting buckets on him, so on and so forth. And for whatever reason, people continue to just side with Chris Paul and people kind of forgot about Patrick Beverly. Patrick Beverly's journey to the NBA is a little bit more unique. He was academically ineligible at Arkansas, wound up having to go overseas and play professionally, got drafted into the NBA in the second round, didn't even crack an NBA roster until about 2013 when he was signed as a free agent. So his journey just screams that he's been an underdog his entire life, right? And as a result, you get that kind of personality. And now you see him coming out on the media and in social media and in the public, continuing to display that underdog mentality. And this time, attacking Chris Paul, right? Now, I've been wondering the last few days, what has been the purpose of all of this, right? Why is he on ESPN? Why did they seek out Patrick Beverly, right? I mean, very random player, I would say. Yeah, he's been outspoken. Yeah, he's fiery, sure. But, I mean, I could think of five or six other guys, maybe even seven or eight other guys that would be way better on ESPN and would be way more enticing, if you will, than Patrick Beverly. Not saying that Patrick Beverly is not. I just feel like he's been on TV the last two and a half weeks simply to just stir the pot, right? And there has been absolutely no need for that. And again, I'm recording this on May 22nd, a Sunday. So this has really been going on for the last week and a half, probably last 10 days or so. And it's just made me really, really intrigued because I personally think that ESPN is just simply using Patrick Beverly to compete with TNT. And why do I say that? 
Well, TNT's coverage of the NBA is by far, in my opinion, the best. I love the ESPN coverage. Don't get me wrong. It's great, but it's not TNT. It's not Ernie Johnson. It's not Kenny the Jet Smith. It's not Charles Barkley, and it's not Shaquille O'Neal. No way, no how. So as a result, I feel like TNT kind of is leading the charge in NBA coverage. Not to mention they went out and they signed Draymond Green forward for the Golden State Warriors to a content contract or basically an appearance contract or whatever you want to call it. And he comes on TNT, comes on, sits on the panel. He has his own show and he's been very outspoken. He has a very strong opinion. And quite frankly, I think that Draymond Green actually does a really nice job on TV. I think I I hope that Draymond Green stays in TV when his NBA career is over because he's very honest. He calls it as he sees it. And he also backs it up with his play. So TNT is kind of taking this mold of, okay, let's go out and get a very outspoken player, bring him on our network, and have him kind of share the ins and outs, the inside of the NBA, which is the main show on TNT that has made them such a big place to cover the NBA. Inside the NBA comes on after usually the night games for TNT. So having him on the network increases ratings, increases popularity, increases the conversation starter of, did you hear what Draymond Green said on TNT? Did you hear what Draymond Green said here? Did you hear what Draymond Green said there? So again, that increases ratings. That piques people's interest because Draymond Green plays for a very good team, an established team. And as a result, I think ESPN is kind of like, well, we can't allow this to happen. We're the worldwide network of sports. We can't allow TNT to take over our coverage of the NBA. So I have theorized and come up with almost a theory that ESPN is simply using Patrick Beverly to increase their ratings and their popularity and to basically compete with TNT and Draymond Green. Because if you think about it, why would ESPN go out and get a player that is currently playing? To my knowledge, they have never really done that in the past. To my knowledge, they have never had somebody that was still currently playing come on the show consistently also and share their opinion and their insight into the league that they're playing in. You don't see that from ESPN. You just don't. And ESPN, I think, is a little bit more cut and dry, if you will, right? They're not loosey-goosey like they are on TNT. They have fun. They're enjoyable. You know, Shaq is saying whatever. Charles Barkley is saying whatever. And I'm sure that ESPN wants to obviously keep kind of a clean persona and just everybody is very cookie cutter. Nobody's going to step out of line. Nobody's going to say anything controversial. We're ESPN. We give the news and our thoughts and our insight. Well, now I think that they're starting to realize that what's getting ratings is having players that are currently playing come on networks and share the ins and outs to their NBA life. I mean, look at JJ Redick, right? The old man in the three podcast started in the bubble during the pandemic and he was a current player and it took off and he still does a tremendous job. He's now on ESPN and he does a tremendous job on ESPN. But I think that was kind of the beginning of this buildup of current players sharing what it's like to be in the league right then and there and getting their personal insight into really just the daily life of being an NBA player. TNT does a sensational job, goes out, gets Draymond Green. Now, I know that Draymond Green in the past has kind of come on here and there, 
but he has come on TNT in an increasing role over the years, and not to mention he's increased his popularity with his podcast that he has. So I think that Patrick Beverly, and I don't want to say that he's being used, but I think that ESPN is starting to realize, okay, if we want to compete with other networks, we're going to have to get outspoken NBA players to come on the show and basically generate drama. And that's what Patrick Beverly has done. I mean, and there's been a lot of people that have come after Patrick Beverly in the last 10 days, two weeks saying, you have no right to do this, way out of line. And there was a couple times where I did feel like he was really out of line was attacking Chris Paul on national TV. And the other thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way about it was that Chris Paul's not even there to defend himself. So Patrick Beverly is in complete control of the situation. Nobody is going to take his microphone away from him. And Chris Paul can't retaliate and retort back to what Patrick Beverly is saying. Now, I'm sure that Chris Paul could say something back on social media or whatever if he really wanted to. Probably does not really want to entertain this, and he probably does not care all that much. But the fact that Patrick Beverly is doing that, it's creating enemies for him, people that have looked up to Chris Paul as almost an idol that could very well be on the Timberwolves, could then maybe start to look at Patrick Beverly a little bit differently. And so I don't want to say that Patrick Beverly has put himself into a tough spot, but he kind of has. He's kind of put himself into a tough spot. But for ESPN, it's probably great. I try to look up what the ratings have been on Get Up since Patrick Beverly has joined the show and has come on and shared his insight and really his displeasure, if you will, with Chris Paul. And like I said, this has gone back years. When they were in high school, they went at it. You know, you go back a year or two ago in the playoffs and Patrick Beverly shoves Chris Paul in the back. I mean, you could kind of tell that there was a little bit of turmoil, and you can definitely think that ESPN was aware of that. They knew that Patrick Beverly was this kind of rough-around-the-edges, tough, outspoken, no-nonsense type of player, and they said, hey, this is a great storyline. He does not like Chris Paul. They've gone back and forth over the years, and I'm sure that... Patrick Beverly maybe reached out to them and said, hey, I've got a couple things that I want to say, and I'm sure that this could propel him into having his own show maybe. Eventually, when his career's over, this could propel him into getting a content deal somewhere. So I think that there's a lot more at play than just ESPN being like, oh, let's just bring on some NBA player and hear his insight to what it's like to be in the league. So I, I genuinely believe that ESPN is simply having Patrick Beverly come on the show to increase their ratings, to compete with other networks like TNT that have current players on their panel and that share their insight into the NBA as well. I just don't know if that really was the right way that ESPN and Patrick Beverly could have gone about it. I wouldn't say that Draymond Green attacks people the way that Patrick Beverly does. And not to mention, Patrick Beverly has almost centered all of his aggression onto Chris Paul. I mean, he has focused entirely all of his energy on a Chris Paul, singling him out, completely singling him out. And so that's why I kind of have a problem with it, because there's not a little bit of unbiased opinion in that situation. It's all biased. He's got a problem with Chris Paul, and I'm really intrigued to see what it's going to be like going into this NBA season when the Timberwolves and the Suns play each other. I mean, what's that going to look like? And again, I'm sure ESPN is going to want to have the coverage of that game. I'm sure that they're going to want to have 
Patrick Beverly on for a halftime interview or whatever. I just think that there is a lot more behind the scenes and that is at play in this than just a current NBA player coming on and screaming and shouting into a microphone. I think that this was very planned out and I am curious to see how this kind of unfolds and how this continues on. And if he's going to continue to attack Chris Paul, if he's going to start centering his energy over to other players, who knows, right? I mean, who knows? But at the end of the day, I have not really liked how Patrick Beverly has come after Chris Paul. I think it is obviously great for TV. It's great for ESPN's ratings. It gets them in the news. They're all over social media. So many sound bites that you can pull out from his whole spiel that he would put together about Chris Paul. And again, that just all generates attraction and attention to the show, to get up to ESPN. So just think about that from from here on out, folks. Just think, you know, maybe Patrick Beverly, he's there just so they can have a competitive voice with TNT and Draymond Green. Because right now, I think TNT is winning that game of NBA coverage. So we'll have to see. I'm I'm very curious to see what's going to happen with it. I, I think that at the end of the day, nothing too severe will come of it. But I do believe that this could spill over and carry on to the court next year. No question. And you already know that ESPN is going to be all over the Timberwolves and the Suns game the first time that they play. I guarantee you all that they will have the coverage of the Timberwolves and the Suns. May 22nd, Sunday of 2022, I am on this podcast that's going to be coming out on Tuesday, the 24th, saying that ESPN is going to be all over the Timberwolves and Suns game and that that is going to be the most hyped game, or at least one of the most hyped games, going into this upcoming NBA season, once we get out of the playoffs and into the regular season. So I really don't know what the deal is with Patrick Beverly. I don't know why he's got this massive grudge. I totally get that's kind of had to be his MO a little bit because he got, like I said, he's got this underdog mentality because he's always been kind of pushed to the back and pushed to the side and people have wanted to pay more attention to other guys. And I think that has obviously rubbed him the wrong way. And it seems like Patrick Beverly wants to get even and ESPN loves it because like I said, generates ratings. So it's a win-win for them. So just keep an eye out for when the Timberwolves and Suns play next year. Circle that one on your calendars, folks, because it is going to be A wild ride, to say the least. But folks, we're going to now dive into a tremendous interview with a great guest, like I mentioned, first ever professional softball player to appear on RTP. And man, oh man, did she share some wild insight into her transfer process going from Texas A&M over to Oklahoma State, her thoughts on the transfer portal and the impact it will have in college sports and so much more. So folks, without further ado, please allow me to introduce to you all the one and only the talented Miss Samantha Shaw. And I'm here with current professional softball player Samantha Shaw. Samantha, great to get you on the show today. How's it going? It's going good. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Absolutely. Well, hey, I'm really excited to have you join us today on Ride in the Pine because really excited to hear a little bit about the world of a professional softball player. You're actually the first professional softball player we've had on the show. So a little a little something that you can throw on the trophy shelf, if you will. Um, but I want to first ask just how the offseason has been for you and what have been some things that you've wanted to focus on that was, you know, kind of something that you, you had on the top of your mind heading out of last year and heading into this season? Yeah, it's been a different off season. 
for me personally than the previous two or three. I've I've put my playing as a priority, and as a professional softball player, the the amount we make isn't something that we can necessarily we live off of so I have put playing at the top of my list so I haven't been giving lessons I haven't been necessarily having just like this income consistently which is a little scary but I did save up enough in the past to do this but I'm hoping that creating more of a relaxed environment um, helps me continue to grow as a softball player and my body should be pre- as as prepared as possible to go and play for the next two months. Well, that's awesome. I think that's great that you've kind of changed a little bit up of what you do in the off season. And I know that you and I were actually mentioning off air that the schedule is actually technically out now. So how exciting is that now? You're at least aware of who you're going to be playing and when you're playing. Yeah, we've actually known, the teams have known for about a month now, and it was just putting it out to the public. I've had multiple people reach out and be like, hey, are y'all playing? I was like, yeah, it's coming, I promise. You just got to wait a little bit. Just confirming, you know, um, locations and teams, but it's it's exciting. I know we're going to have some great crowds, uh, and I'm excited to play in front of fans again and interact with everyone. Yeah, uh, playing in front of fans, I'm sure that's got to be something that you are itching to get back to. And, and, and not only that, but just at a normal pace and at a normal consistency, if you will, as, a to, as opposed to how it's been the last few years. But I want to get into the end of last year because it was a little bit of an emotional finish for you and your team. Your former teammate, Alex Powers, retired from professional softball, and she was a instrumental part of your team. What were some pieces of advice she shared with you that you feel really stuck with you and have continued to make an impact in your career today? Just to have fun with it, you know, it's professional softball isn't forever. And Alex did a an amazing job with like going, she was finishing her master's degree while working in the front office of USSA, and then on top of that, still playing. So she set an example that if you want something and you want, you want to be really good at something, there's plenty of time to do that while still reaching for your goals and going for the things that you really want. And I admire that wholeheartedly. I know her days weren't easy and there were early mornings and late nights. And I can only hope that if I ever have a, you know, a desire to go back to school and I still want to play softball, you know, I'm going to think back to Alex and what she was able to do last year and finish a very successful softball career, professional career, um, surrounded by a lot of people that love her and enjoyed watching her play. Well, that's awesome. And I think that it really speaks volume to her character and who she is and just the ability that she's able to go through, like you said, all the different things that she was juggling at one time. And I think it's cool that it's been an impact in your career. And also you get to kind of see, you know, she's she was on the way out of her career. You're on the beginning front of your professional career. So you kind of like to look into the future, if you will, and see what it's going to be like down the road for you. But I want to get into your career, actually. We'll start out collegially. You initially joined Texas A&M. You started there before you made your way over to Oklahoma State. We'll get to that in a little bit, but I want to hear what made you decide on Texas A&M initially. So my my recruitment story is so crazy only because I committed to play at Texas A&M when I was like 14 years old. It was the fall of my freshman year in high school. And honestly, 
the the main reason why I chose A&M is because there were already like two or three girls already committed to play there. So I was one of the younger ones on my teams because I, I just played up. And so um, I'm playing like 16. It's the summer before my um, freshman year of high school. I'm in Colorado. I make the all-star game and I'm out there. I think I hit a home run and I'm pitching well. And the recruiter for my select ball team comes up to me after the game and said, hey, if you want to go to A&M, you're going to be able to. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah, my friends are going there, but cool. So finally, at the very end of the summer, I go to an overnight camp there. I, I get to kind of witness what a college campus is like because neither of my parents went to college. So it wasn't like on Saturday afternoons we were sitting there watching college football of any college we we just played softball every weekend so it was uh, an eye-opening thing but at the same time as a 14 year old like I didn't know what I was doing I just wanted to play softball softball was the best thing in my life and finally um probably September of my freshman year I went on a visit um coach Evans offered me a full ride Nobody in my family knew what that meant, understood what the recruitment process was like. And Coach Evans gave me an option. You can accept tonight, tomorrow, in a week, in a month, in a year. I don't care. The offer's on the table. I would just like an answer eventually. And me being the 14-year-old, not understanding what that meant, my my dad was just like, well, if you're going to do it, why don't you do it? And I was like, can I get back to you tomorrow? I'll give you my answer to mom. Um, and we talk about it. I say, cool. Okay. I'll come here. Full ride scholarship. Great. And that really, um, allowed my select ball career to be very easygoing next, what, three years. So, um, there wasn't like a big deciding factor. We don't have like generation of Aggies. A couple of my friends were already committed there. I was like, okay, my friends are going to go. I'll go. And yeah. Wow, what an interesting, interesting story. I don't think I've heard many people say that they, you know, first time they saw the school and they were dead set on on going. Now, when you look back at that, do you wish that you might have shopped your options around a little bit more and had visited other schools? Absolutely. There is actually a moment around my junior year where I thought about decommitting just to make sure A&M was the right decision. Like I said, I was 14 years old. I didn't know what like visits were. I actually had a, um, a visit. That, so I literally went on one official, I went on one visit to one school and that was A&M and I accepted on my first visit. And the next weekend I was supposed to go on a, a uh, visit to North Texas and we had to cancel that. But, um, it, I, I definitely wish I would have explored my options. Uh, obviously, a and a part of my journey and my story, and I'm very thankful for it. But um, there was some, like, hesitation of, did I make the right decision? Did I explore all my options? So, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's that's a very hard, like you said, decision for somebody that young to make. And it's also asking a lot. I mean, you're asking somebody where they want to be for the for, for a four-year span when they still have three, four years ahead of them of a totally different school and a totally different routine of being around mom and dad and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that's a lot to ask anybody that young. Do you feel that or have you ever sat and wondered maybe – they should start educating younger high school athletes on the ins and outs of the recruiting process. Do you look back and wish that maybe you had a little bit more education on and just somebody there to kind of guide you through it? 
Absolutely. And, and thankfully, uh, I think it was two years ago, they did uh, make a role where you cannot talk to colleges until your junior year of high school. So at least those are 15, I mean, like 15 to 17 year olds. So at least, you know, there's a little bit more knowledge and a little bit more developed in the brain. But I think what the travel and select ball world has done a really good job of is there's so many like companies and businesses and avenues for like recruiters to contact a college or just give the parents some, a better understanding of what's going on and, and the player. Um, I, I do wish that we would have asked more questions um, and that, that doesn't fall on anyone, honestly, cause I'm my mom and dad's oldest kid and they didn't know what they, they didn't know anything either. Um, but I definitely wish we would have taken a little bit more time, but also I think the travel ball world's doing a better job with explaining. And anytime I get to talk about my recruitment process, I always explain, look, take your time, enjoy the process, go on, on go on as many visits as you can and ask the hard questions and that way you get a good understanding of what you like and what you don't like and hopefully you end up in the right spot. I think it's really great that you now kind of have become almost an advocate for that, right? I mean, an advocate for the recruiting process and the proper recruiting process of high school athletes. And I think that, you know, down the road, there's going to be somebody that's going to look back and say, I'm really glad that Samantha Shaw told me that because now I have a better understanding of that and I'm going to know which decision and which school to go to. But you clearly made the right decision right from the get when you go to Texas A&M playing wise freshman year, you win 25 games in the pitching circle. You hit 13 home runs, an incredible two way season. What was it that allowed you to have such an effortless transition from high school to division one softball? I think even though I was already, you know, committed to play out of college, I still took those three years of select ball pretty seriously. I, I was trying to make sure I was going to be in a starting position my freshman year. I didn't want to sit the bench. So I just continued to get better. Um, and and I was, I was lucky enough to be on very um, – good select ball teams growing up in Houston, Texas. That's a, that's a hub for select softball. So I was surrounded by some really good players and I didn't ever settle for just being okay. And on top of that, myself and the three other freshmen in our class, we all started our freshman year. So even though you think, oh, they're just freshmen, like, what do they know? Like, we went out there and we showed them, like, we deserve to be here and we're going to take your spot if you're not going to work hard enough. And so just being surrounded by people that wanted to win is what allowed me to go out and do what I, I love to do. And um, I think as a freshman, you don't really know what you're getting yourself into, so you don't think as much and you just are able to play. Well, I think being able to go into it with those relaxed shoulders and not so much pressure building up onto you. And, and like you said, kind of that familiarity with other teammates. And then also on top of that, like you said, being able to come from, you know, other winning programs and apply that. And clearly you applied that at Texas A&M 2017, a huge year for you and the Aggies go to the women's college world series after beating Tennessee two games to one in the super regional. Now, during that run to the world series, was there any certain set of games or maybe a particular game that stands out during that run that you feel was kind of the defining moment that allowed you guys to go that far? Um, yeah, I think 
that was a really emotional year for our team. We had very good talent. We had a, a transfer come in from Colorado State, Trinity Harrington, and her dad was actually going through um, uh, cancer, and he, he was kind of on his last leg. And during regionals, she wasn't even there to help me pitch. So I basically pitched all of regionals by myself, and we were able to win out there. And so for her to come back to that super regional at Tennessee – um, it was a really like special emotional moment and obviously going to the World Series, you couldn't ask for anything better than that. So honestly, that whole postseason was like memorable, emotional and very fun to, I mean, get to experience the World Series for the first time. Yeah, I'm sure that had to have been uh, one uh, a memory that you will have for a lifetime and something that you probably look back at with fond memories. But you eventually decide to transfer after a couple years at Texas A&M. You go to Oklahoma State. What went into your decision to wanting to go to Oklahoma State? And also, what was maybe similar or different for you in this process transferring as opposed to when you were first initially looking to go to college? Yeah, so... And I want to remind everyone, I transferred before the transfer portal. So I didn't have that luxury of not having to talk to the coaching staff and all this stuff. And um, I, after my freshman year, I started to feel like less appreciative or people, the coaching staff didn't appreciate me and what I brought to the team. And you can look at my stats. My numbers just went down. My playing time went down and it wasn't making sense to me. I was like, I was such a, a pivotal player for you my freshman year. And now all of a sudden, like, you're not giving me the opportunities you were giving me like, what's up. And it wasn't like my, my performance went down and there was just a lack of communication on what was happening. And so finally, we're at Super Regionals, and we're playing Florida. We absolutely should have won that, and we lost, and that was my moment. I didn't start one game in that Florida Super, and I was like, all right, I don't want to deal with this one more season, especially my last season. I didn't know if professional was even an option for me at that moment, so I was like, I need to love softball again, and I need to enjoy my senior year. So we get back, and... It's pretty common to have end-of-the-year meetings, so I go in there with my paper and all my stats written down and what I want to say, and it was a very emotional meeting for me because I was trying to explain to them how unhappy I was and and the, the disappointment from me that they weren't able to communicate what was going on. And remind you, if I committed to play for them as a 14-year-old, that's literally probably four years of high school and then on top of that, three years of actually playing there. So that's seven years of being committed to a university and to not have any type of communication or trust in me. It was like, what is going on? Why? What's different? So unfortunately, after that first meeting, they didn't understand. I walk out crying. I took another week to kind of make sure my decision of transferring was the right one. I went in there told her it wouldn't be fair for me or this team for me to stay one more year and I want my papers to transfer and she didn't really try to hold me back she didn't try to like keep me there so that was just more of an answer to me like okay this is the right decision I walk out of there like a thousand pounds have been lifted off my shoulders and now I'm thinking okay I'm about to be a senior. I'm sure not a lot of programs have money for me because I had a, I had a full ride at Texas A&M. So it wasn't like, like my parents weren't, they didn't save. I didn't have some trust fund. So I probably, I needed more of a scholarship. Um, 
and that was a scary moment for me. Like, oh my gosh, what if, you know, a, a school like, I really wanted to go to Texas at the time. I was like, what if they don't have money for me? Like, am I going to have to take out a loan? Am I going to have to do all this? So I'm waiting on my papers. I ha- they, there's like 10 to 15 days that, that max until the coach gives you your papers. And I mean, I get my papers finally on the last day, which it's not like I have a lot of time to decide what school I want to go to. I literally have probably like 10 weeks to find a school in order to play my senior season. And I get my papers and coaches can restrict schools they don't want you to go to. And literally you think of any school around Texas A&M, Texas, um, Texas State, you got Baylor, you got Oklahoma, you got um, McNeese, University Louis. Like I had at least 10 schools on my list. And I was like, no way. She is, I'm not good enough for you to start me in supers, but I'm so good. You don't want to play against me down the road. And I was like, that's not right. So I go back to her and I say, look, if you don't give me release to these schools, I'm going to go public and I'm going to fight for myself. Like, this isn't right. So finally, she gives me the release and I start talking to schools. I was in contact with Texas State. At the time, Texas didn't have a head coach, so I wasn't talking to them. Um, Oklahoma State was the first school I reached out to. I had Michigan reach out to me. I didn't want to go play up north, so that was a no. Um, University Louisiana Lafayette was an option. Washington reached out to me. So there were some really good options. Um, I took my time. That's, that's the one difference I wanted to make sure I did from my first time doing this is just, you know, one and done visit that bam, bam. And I didn't explore my options. So I went into this process thinking, okay, I want to take as many visits as possible I want to explore my options as in being what I was like 21 at the time. So I understood more things like things that I needed from a coaching staff. Like growing up, I played for predominantly male coaching staffs and I went to a predominantly female staff like that. I didn't work well with that. And, um, you know, I wanted to be that, that person. I wanted to be the leader. I wanted to be the team, that person, the team looked to, to get the job done. So that's a big leadership role. I wanted as many innings in the circle as possible while getting to hit for myself. And so going into that process, I asked all the hard questions and, um, yeah, OSU was my first visit. That was the first one I got to do. And that, that came about. Taylor Lynch, who played at Oklahoma State with me. Me and she's she's from Dallas. I'm from um, Houston. So we played against each other growing up a lot. She DMs me on Twitter and she said, hey, I heard you're transferring. You want to give Oklahoma State a chance? And I was like, heck yeah, send me the coach's number and I'll give him a call. Um, Coach D called me. We had a great talk, set up a date, and I was out. I was up there pretty quick. Um, my next visit was Washington, and my last visit was to ULL. Wow, what a process to say the least that you had to go through just to 
basically get what you deserved was a fair chance and the the opportunity to be an impact player somewhere. That is uh, wild. So that now leads me to obviously dig a little bit deeper into the transfer portal that we now currently have in, in college sports. How much do you think that's going to change college sports and just the trajectory of the NCAA overall? And, and also, I mean, have you had any current softball players reach out to you and, you know, maybe ask for some advice on to how to maneuver through the transfer process? Yeah, um, I think it's... <laughs> I, I want to see the positive side of it because I've heard a lot of negative things about the portal. As someone that went through the transfer process before it, I think it's going to allow kids to be more confident in their their decision to leave because those those meetings with coaches, at least for me, like that was scary. That didn't happen a lot. I didn't have to go into my coach's office and speak to her one-on-one. And, one on one. and so I hope that allows kids to make a decision quicker, earlier, than you know waiting till the last year but I I've had a lot of I've had a handful of girls reach out to me and especially like from the OSU coaching staff they they reach out to me and was like hey we want this kid I, I want you to reach out to her and see what she's thinking or like Carrie Eberly, I showed her around on her official visit um I think I talked to Allison Fibri as well b- before she got there and so just creating a community of like it's okay what you're doing if that's if this is what you really want like then you got to do it it's okay the world may talk and say bad things about you but it doesn't matter they don't know what you went through at your previous school and it's none of their business as long as you end up at the right place and I I hope that it, it creates a positive environment and atmosphere for kids to get what they want because as adults if you don't like the job you're at do you stay there no you leave so why can't a college athlete do the same thing um so yeah yeah, I mean, it's a great point that you make. Um, and I think that the transfer portal, just like the NIL, are two very much needed things in college sports. I am also the, the believer in, you know, you do need to kind of put a fence up around uh, at some point for a barrier to make sure that, you know, nobody gets a little creative and starts to take advantage of the system. But right. at the same time, I think what is needed is is people making the decisions for themselves, right? You don't need to have a coach pretty much blockading where you can and cannot go to school. I mean, that's not a decision right. on the coach. It's the decision on the player. And you clearly found a brand new home, was the impact player that you wanted to be at Oklahoma State because your hitting numbers were through the roof. If I'm not mistaken, you had 20 home runs, 56 RBIs. I mean, what were some adjustments you had wanted to make heading into that season that you feel paid off for you and, and really – kind of allowed you to have that type of season from the plate and in the pitching pitching circle as well at Oklahoma State? I was surrounded by people who wanted me to do good. And I was in an environment to be myself authentically. And I, I wasn't, coaches weren't trying to put me in some cookie cutter mold. You know, when I went on my visit to OSU, Coach G straight up looked at me. He said, I don't know if I can make you a better softball player because of how good you already are. I want to make you a better person. I want to make you, you know, a, a people's person. And I was like, you know what? Sold. So going through the whole process of having a coaching staff that cared for me, not just as an athlete, but as a person. And eventually my teammates came around and we created a bond that was unlike any team I've ever been on before. And so they 
any any person that stepped in that in that box, we all supported her. Um, any person, you know, if I got pulled out of the game, you know, I was that pitcher's biggest supporter. We just wanted to win, and we weren't going to stop until we won. We weren't going to stop until the last out was made. And knowing that my teammates and my coaches trusted me enough to do my do what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it, I think that's why my numbers were they that, that that's why my numbers look the way they do now I am a very emotional player and, and I wear my heart on my sleeve and my coaches weren't afraid to coach me either they there were times where I may have snapped or said something too bluntly and they would come to me and be like look I understand what you're saying you can't say it like that you got to go apologize and explain to your teammate what you were trying to say and so not only is that creating, you know, a good atmosphere for players to coach players, but they taught me so much about communicating and leadership and, you know, an open, an open line of communication through, between a player and a coach. And it's not like the coach is always talking down to me. It's, it's, we're equals. We're, we got to, we need one another in order to win. And that's why I was able to play the way I did my senior year. Well, I think that's awesome that you were able to find that place where you could be yourself and you could play how you wanted to play. And I did read a couple things that you are known as, if I'm not mistaken, the queen of bat flips, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Um, I mean, is there any secret behind the bat flip? It's, it's, it was raw motion, man. There, there wasn't, you know, out of all the bat flips or pimp draws, like every ball that I hit, um, it either won the game it tied it up or it put us ahead. So it wasn't like when we were killing a team, you know, eight to nothing and I hit a home run. I didn't do it in those situations. They were really big moments. And and I, I wanted to admire all the hard work, work I had done. And I wasn't just barely getting this ball over the fence. Like I was clearing the fences by a lot. And so I wanted to admire my work and tell my team we're still in this thing. I've got you. Let's keep going. Don't give up yet. Like we got to keep going. And there wasn't one moment where I ever looked at the pitcher and like stared her down as I would I would look at my team immediately no matter where they were and the bat flip was just emotion like I said I'm an emotional person and the emotions came out through my bat well, I clearly think that it truly did allow you to have the season and, and, and be able to play at the level that you did because you got to be you and you got to play how you felt the most comfortable. And it also kind of translated over to the entire team. You make another run to the College World Series in 2019 with Oklahoma State. What were some similarities or differences from the two teams that you were a part of that made it to the College World Series? Honestly, and this may sound really bad, I... I think the team in 2017 at AM, I think we were more talented one through nine. But we didn't have the chemistry that the 2019 Oklahoma State team did. And I think at OSU, my senior year, we had that grit. We had that, we're not going to stop until the game's over. We're going to keep fighting because we had some crazy amount of comeback wins um, my senior year. And, and like I said, I never played on a team before where everybody wanted everybody else to succeed my senior year. And I think that's what allowed us to get to the World Series and then at least win one game. Because when I went in 2017, we lost our first two games and we were out. So it was kind of like a different experience, two completely different experiences. Um, but um, 
I was so happy to obviously finish my college career at the World Series, get Oklahoma State back on the map, because I, w- I only had one year there. There was only so much I could do playing-wise in order to help OSU, but getting them back on that national stage, it's like I've done everything I could do to help this university, help this program, help the young kids on the team, and help Coach G and his staff get back to where they deserve. And the the two years were completely different. I had so much fun my last year with OSU. Um, I don't know if I would, I mean, the only thing I would change is probably winning it all. But even then, I got to hang my cleats up, my, my college cleats at the World Series. And that was my goal from the very beginning. Well, I think it's awesome that you were able to clearly, you know, live out that goal and get there and you got to do it twice. I mean, there's not many players that can say that they did it two different times. So I think that's even more impressive in itself. But you eventually graduate, like you said, from Oklahoma State and you make your way to the professional world of softball. Very curious about what the professional world of softball looks like and, you know, really just what kind of is involved in getting noticed by teams and the process in which you get picked by teams. I mean, what is kind of like that process look like from the outside looking in and, and, and you know, being able to, I mean, is there a draft? I mean, how does it kind of all get broken down and and put together? So there was a draft my senior year. Um, The the professional softball world's kind of gone through some crazy things. Um, I, my rookie year, played on a team called the Scrapyard Dogs. Scrapyard? And um, they were an independent team at the moment. So they were a part of the NPF, which was the professional league my first year, but they left due to payment. Like the, the, they weren't able to pay their players what they, what they deserve. So the GM of that team, um, I had I knew her previously through select ball. She coached a lot of teams when I was playing her daughter played at A&M. So I had known her for multiple years, reached out to her and I was like, eh. And another thing, this team was based in Houston, Texas, my home. So I was like, if I get to play for my home professional softball team, like, why not? So texted her and I was like, look, I would love to play for your professional team. If this is an option, I won't even put my name in the draft. She said, yes, we would love to have you. Cool. So I, I technically never got drafted, but I did play on a professional team. Um So I did that, like, I got done at the World Series. I probably had, like, one and a half weeks of downtime, and then I was driving back down to Houston to play professionally. Did that until, oh, man, probably, like, the end of July. So maybe, like, a month and a half, two months of professional softball here in the States. And then I went over to Italy, the Milan area, played softball overseas for two months while still being in school and finishing my second degree and did that, came back. Um, I was a student assistant for OSU still, so I was going to school and helping coach the softball team, coaching first base, and COVID hit, so everybody, you know, went home. And so I haven't had, like, a normal professional career it feels like like everything just seems so crazy and I'm sure I'm probably not the only one but um trying to prepare for the next professional season 
your first year to be in an off season without being in like a team setting, it was like, I got thrown into the deep end and I don't know how to swim. I was trying to figure it out. I didn't have access to like batting cages or field because in COVID everything was shut down. Um, so it was a really, um, interesting time. Um, the summer of 2020 was the first year athletes unlimited was played and I did get to play in that. So that's a whole different professional softball league. That was a lot of fun. And yeah, it's been a crazy ride ever since. Um, last year, the USSA pride picked me up. So I did that last year, played athletes unlimited for a second year after my pride season. And now I'm playing with pride again. Do you ever have time to just sit and like relax for like five minutes? <laughs> well, that's the thing. That's why this off season, I took it upon myself to like relax. Like I've just been going, 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 trying to make money with giving lessons and then trying to prepare for softball. And then it's softball season and then go give lessons again. So it was like, okay, I'm not even gonna like technically work outside my working season, which has been very crazy, but I've had so much time to like relax. It's been, it was hard to get used to at first, but now I really enjoy, you know, doing nothing, <laughs> which is probably really bad, but I'm working out, I'm training. And that's what I get to devote my time to in my own time frame, which is really nice. But it's been a very hectic three years. Oh, it sounds like it. Um, you know, bouncing around from different teams, I mean, different countries, and then you're coaching and you're graduating and it's, I mean, you're getting pulled in 18 different directions. I mean, that is, that's wild. And I think it's also impressive that you're able to just get through all of it and still, you know, find time now, nowadays, at least to relax for a little bit. Talk a little bit about that experience when you went over to Italy. I mean, what's it like playing softball in a different country? I mean, are there some glaring similarities or differences in the style of play? Softball, softball. Um, the only difference to me was just the level of play. And remind you, I went from the biggest stage for softball, which is the World Series, and then I went to playing professional, playing a lot of the national teams. We played Team USA, Team Canada, Team Mexico, Team Japan, Team China. Like, we were playing some really high-caliber teams. And then going over to Italy, where I have always compared it to, like, high school softball. Like, it's just not as competitive. You don't have great players one through nine. And at that point, for me, I had been playing softball for literally a year straight. So I was kind of like, I was over it. I wanted to go home. So my attitude at the beginning sucked a little bit. I was like, I don't want to be here. Eventually, you know, once I kind of changed my attitude I was able to enjoy it more and it wasn't as serious as what I was playing before and it, it, it caught it allowed me to have a little bit more fun and not put so much pressure on myself to perform um but I'm very grateful and happy I got to explore the world literally for free they paid for my flight and my housing and I got paid a little chunk of money so I'm glad I did it right out of college I was still young I was still able to explore it was before COVID like it, it was it was a fun experience 
Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Plus, you're in Italy. I mean, that's pretty cool. I've always wanted to go to Italy, and I think that you know anybody would love to travel the world and play the sport that they love to play. I mean, that is you know the epitome of the dream. You mentioned COVID, and you you briefly touched on just kind of what you were going, th- what you were doing during your softball career when COVID hit. What was that like when COVID did kind of come crashing down? I know you said that you were coaching a little bit, also. So for as a coach and also a player during that time, I mean, I mean there was probably really a lot of downtime, right? Yeah, it was a big adjustment because I had only been back. I got back from Italy like October 1st, right? So there's only a little bit of school left. You have Christmas break for like a month. You come back, you start, you know, the softball team's preseason and everything. And I was finally getting comfortable like in the coaches. Like I was coaching first base. That was a whole new thing for me. And and it, it was like a crazy time and then we're about to go play I think we were about to go travel to like uh Georgia and we the our head coach coach she pulls everyone in it was like guys um it was during spring break too we were on our spring break and he was like guys um our series just got canceled and it may look like the whole year is going to get canceled. And I mean, luckily I wasn't playing, so I didn't have like this, like it wasn't so sad for me as shocking, but seeing those girls, you know, break down and them not knowing if they were going to get their senior year, like it could have been that their last year of softball. So it was a really crazy time. Um, I think I hung around Stillwater for maybe a week and a half more until I came back to Texas and tried to figure life out. Um, I was still in school. So having, you know, I, luckily, I don't know if luckily, but a lot of my classes were online. So what, that wasn't a huge adjustment, but, um, coming back and like living with your parents again and it was really crazy. And then on top of that, learning how to train by yourself, like, Literally, I was hitting a ball off a tee into a net and pitching into a net. Like, it wasn't your ideal training situation, and I couldn't really even get into a gym. So I was just, like, running miles, which for softball, you, you as a power hitter and a someone that pitches, like, you need to put on some muscle. And so trying to be creative in ways, it was really interesting. But, um, I mean, it all worked out. But... Um, I can honestly say I'm glad I wasn't a senior when COVID hit. Yeah, I, I've often had that same kind of curiosity or wonder what that would, would have been like just hearing that your season is over and it's your last year of playing. I mean, that's got to be a horrendous thing to, to, to hear. Um, but when you were coaching, I mean, and you were also simultaneously basically, you know, playing, but at the professional level. So you're basically like a coach player. I mean, what's that like? You know, what's kind of the, the mindset that you have? I mean, you probably have two sides of your brain working on two different, you know, aspects of the game of softball, player, coach, player or coach how do you balance that well considering that a lot of the girls I was coaching I was literally teammates with like less than a year ago I was trying to help them more as a player like relaying messages from the coaches to them player to player and because I was still playing I was getting to train with them I was getting to practice with them like I was still involved as a player and then it's like they had a friend at first base when they made it there. If they had a they had a serious question and they weren't comfortable going to Coach D, like they came to me. I really enjoyed that role. I was really sad that COVID kind of cut it short. 
because I wanted to get that experience coaching D1 level, really good team, really great athletes. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I think if I ever get the opportunity again to coach at that level, I would probably take it selfishly to train with really good facilities at a field, cages, weight room. Like it, it's honestly the perfect setup for a professional softball player, but it does take a lot of time and a lot of dedication to get your work done that you need to while helping that team get better. Well, I think it's awesome that you were able to kind of be that extra voice or that extra ear for players to go to, and they felt comfortable going up to you. And not to mention, you got a little bit of a taste for it, so now you kind of also have a little bit of an idea of what you want to do down the road. And if you can get into coaching, I think that would be you know an awesome avenue. And not to mention, you'd still be able to be around softball. But Samantha, you've been awesome to have on the show today. Before I let you go, one last question, and it involves okay. kind of a realization, epiphany, whatever you want to call it, as to when you realized you could be a professional softball player. So for you when did it kind of click and it it, and it dawned on you that you could truly become a pro softball player from a really young age I was so obsessed with softball I never gave myself another choice now at that really young age meaning like I was six years old like I was I was a professional softball player at six like I it's all I cared about and um I think I realized my freshman year when I got to AM, our hitting coach, Jerry Glasgow, which is now the head coach at ULL, and honestly, he's the head coach of the other team we're going to be playing against this summer, the Vipers. He was like, Shao, you're going to be able to play professionally if you keep putting numbers up like this. And I was like, cool. Like, all right. Now, I didn't know what that really meant. Um, he didn't explain. Like, it's not a, a salary to live off of, but I love softball so much. I'm willing to grind it out go nonstop, probably not sleep a lot, probably not get a lot of breaks because of that's how much I love softball. And we're trying to grow the sport. So I probably realized my freshman year, but I, I never gave myself any other option but to be a softball player. Well, Samantha, you have made it an unbelievable career. I mean, everywhere you've gone, you've had an impact and you continue to do that. And I really appreciate your time today. Would love to get you back on the show to obviously hear a little bit more about your career and just the the life of a softball player. Um, But good luck moving forward. Good luck in spring training, or I guess it would be maybe summer training, but good luck in the season ahead and the summer ahead. And uh, we'll chat soon. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you so much. Lots of fun. And there she goes, Samantha Shaw. another fantastic episode today, everyone. Thanks for joining me here on the bench. Be sure to keep following and subscribing to Ride in the Pine on Apple and Spotify, and keep following on Twitter, at RideThePine20RTP, all capital, Instagram, at Riding underscore the underscore pine underscore, and TikTok, at Ride in the Pine, all lowercase. For all the latest updates on episodes and content to come, all 220 episodes are out now. Keep leaving those ratings and reviews. Keep getting signed up to the e-newsletter list, but also keep your eyes and ears open for some new content coming out on the social medias, some great new guests coming down the pipeline as well. We've got a lot of really, really good stuff coming down the horizon on this podcast, and I can't wait to share that with all of you in this upcoming summer and moving forward. But once again, everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today, and until next time on Riding the Pine, keep on sitting the bench with me.